I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Piecing the Puzzle Together for a Successful Cover Crop Strategy, is being brought to you by Novatel. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series. Currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it added here as well. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to Novatel for their support of today's program. Novatel's GNSS receivers and antennas are found in the data collection, control, guidance, and steering systems of the world's top precision egg companies and vehicle manufacturers' products. Their TerraStar Correction Services provide submeter or decimeter accurate positioning around the world anytime. As the global leader in OEM precision positioning technology, Novatel customers rely on them to provide reliable, quality solutions that optimize growers' productivity and efficiency that save time and lower input costs. Visit www.novatel.com or call them today at 1-800-668-2835. Well, practice makes perfect is a phrase often used to describe experimental efforts for fine-tuning a method or system and achieve a desired outcome. But when it comes to integrating cover crops into strip-till, perfection may be unattainable or at the very least, the definition of perfection is different for every farmer. Since 2007, Dr. Joe Groover, professor of soil science and sustainable agriculture in the School of Agriculture at Western Illinois University in Macomb, Illinois, has conducted intense research tied to cover crop usage in conservation tillage systems and organic grain production. Groover has collaborated with a diverse group of innovative farmers studying their approaches and results for use of cover crops to include the impacts of nutrient availability and soil moisture dynamics. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, Groover shares some of the key takeaways from his on-farm collaboration with farmers and how they've utilized cover crops as a systematic puzzle piece. But I think the number one place that I've learned about cover crops has not been through academic stuff, not even through my own research, but through interacting with innovative farmers. And I just have some of the farmers that I've interacted with. Some of these people I have interacted quite intensively with. I did some of my master's research on Steve Groff's farm. Other people I've only talked to a little bit. But these are all people who have influenced the way I think about cover crops and have contributed to this presentation. A few of these people I've never met, but these are people that I have read about in preparation for this presentation, thinking about some of the things that we need to put together to make strip-till and cover crops integrate well. And specifically, in preparation for this presentation, I called up some farmers, and I talked to one of my students, former students, Austin Tomhave, and his, his family you can see in the upper left, and I talked to Todd Muberry, and I talked to Blake Vince and Huey Meyer, and Lauren um, Stenlogge. 
It's great to have some of these people in the audience, and they might jump up and correct me if I didn't quite get their ideas right. But it's not just farmers. There are a lot of other people in the ag industry that are part of this cover crop story. And specifically, what I have shown here are some people that I've worked with in terms of strip till. So I'm doing mostly organic grain research, but we're doing precision ag technologies. In terms of thinking about how to fit cover crops, how to select cover crops into strip-till farming systems, I started out thinking kind of along the lines of presentations I've given before. What are your objectives? What are the species, and how do they fit into objectives? And I realized I wanted to take a different tactic. After talking to the farmers I talked to and thinking about their contexts, what was different about those farmers, what was making them successful, what was making them successful with practices that did not succeed on other farms in their area or some of the other farmers I talked to, I realized that context really, really matters. Some of you have maybe heard me say that we shouldn't think about cover crops as the missing puzzle piece. Anybody ever heard that before? Steve Groff sometimes says that. And the idea there is that the missing puzzle piece implies that you don't change anything else. You just stick in that missing technology. And cover crops often don't fit perfectly if you do not adjust anything else. But actually, I created this slide this morning with a different purpose. My idea here is that we have to recognize what our puzzle pieces are that we are fitting cover crops into. You need to think about your soils. Do you have highly erodible soils? Do you have poorly drained soils? Are you located in a location where your climate typically makes it more challenging or easier to fit in cover crops after harvest? What is your standard crop rotation? When do you typically plant and harvest? Do you have livestock? Are you generating manure? Is grazing an option? You know, those are puzzle pieces that you are fitting cover crops into. And some of those puzzle pieces can be changed relatively easily. Some of them, we might historically say, can't be changed at all. But I think some people are changing soil so dramatically with some of the innovative management practices today that maybe even the whole concept of a soil type being something inherent that can't change is something that has changed on a farm like Dave Brandt's farm or other farms where over long periods of time, intensive cover cropping has really fundamentally changed the soils. But the other piece of, or the other pieces of the puzzle, other than your soils and your climate and your current farming practices are the human pieces. And that's what was, I think, so clear to me as I talked to these different farmers. The human resources are part of your context. I thought back to this article, and this may seem a little academic, but uh, this is an article I assigned to some of my students, and there are a couple students out there, so they might even remember reading this. But this is a strange title for an article. Evangelists, scholars, historians, lab types, computer buffs, map makers, and auger pullers in the soil survey. The point here is that all those different types of people are needed to make a soil survey. It's not just somebody walking over the land taking some notes. That person is an auger puller, very important. But all those other types of people are needed to make a good soil survey. All sorts of types of people are needed to make cover crops work effectively. We need soil evangelists, 
Some of you may have been wondering what a soil evangelist is, you know, on the previous slide. An evangelist, is, of course, is somebody who saves souls, right? A soil evangelist saves soils, but they do it with a passion. They do it, you know, with a fervor that some of us hear people like Ray Archuleta and we think, he is over the top. And then other people, of course, they have that convert experience, right? I mean, they never think the same about soil again after hearing Ray Archuleta. Of course, we also might have just somebody's grandfather who never has given a formal presentation, but on the farm he goes out and he talks to his grandchildren after a rainstorm, and he says, I don't want our land looking like that field over there. I want our land to be green and not to have erosion rills. We need people who grow cover crop seeds like Garth Mulkey. I don't know Ben... Peterson in the lower left, but he's an example of a a younger farmer who is bringing cover crops into a strip-till system. Of course, Dave Brandt, he's kind of a soil evangelist as well, but of course, he's different than Ray Archuleta. He's somebody who, you know, when you hear Ray Archuleta speak, you might think, has he really done this? We know with Dave Brandt that he has practiced everything he preaches. And of course, we need people who crunch the numbers and maybe go online and get new information. How, How many of you are ag talkers. Okay, so I post on ag talk from time to time, and uh, it's a, I think I get a lot more out than I give back. Bottom line is that you have to think about on your farm and in your community what human resources you have that influence what cover crops you should select. What was really clear is that some of the farmers that I just talked to, they had neighbors who were cover crop seed dealers. That impacted their access to seed. That impacted the prices. Maybe some of you are seed dealers. You know, that is a context for what seeds you should use. But we also need to think about another farmer. It's three generations, and the grandfather's the soil evangelist. There's nothing that he doesn't want to do to protect his soil. And then the son is the number cruncher who is kind of the reality check. No, that's not going to pay. And then the son that I had as a student, he's the, the mediator. I was, some of you might recognize this picture. <laughs> I posted this on Ag Talk a little ways back. Um, I was driving out here yesterday and I was listening to a preacher. And the preacher said, some people see opportunities in every problem. Others see problems in every opportunity. And I heard the same kind of message from some of the farmers that I talked to. Some people look for opportunities to fail when they try strip till or cover crops or some other practice. They are looking for what's going wrong. And of course, things do go wrong. Other people are looking for what's going right. And the things that aren't working, they're looking for how to fix them. I was out at the farm, the research farm I managed back in uh, early April, and I saw that we had this one strip that had way too much soybean residue, and we had not gotten a good stand of oats. I didn't have a tractor rented yet, so I used my horsepower and pulled that spike-tooth harrow and got some oats and red clover planted. Many of you know this guy, Lauren. I think before I'd ever met him, I think I'd read a few of his posts on Egg Talk, I found this article. And um, this is a great profile that I think really talks about why Lauren is successful with cover crops. 
It's the same reason why he's successful with lots of other things. He's a problem solver. He is looking for that better mousetrap. So just very quick, I'm not going to read through all of this, but I'm going to just give you a little bit of context for the individuals that I talked to, and then we'll talk about how they approached selecting cover crops. So Lauren is doing mostly continuous strip-till corn. Um, He originally started about 10 years ago with a modified 12-row Ross and zone-till bar, and he started adding things to it, you know, making that better mousetrap. So he added a shank. He started putting on ways to deliver fertilizer, and currently he runs a 12-row Krauss Gladiator with a mounted Montague box. Um, he's putting fertilizer into the row, dry-blended as well as ammonia, and he is experimenting on-farm all the time. Tom Hay Farms. So Wayne's the grandfather, John is the son, and Austin was, is the grandson, my student who just graduated. Um, they manage intensively. As I said, Wayne was the, or is the soil evangelist, the guy who just always is thinking conservation, and then John is maybe a little more conservative. Um, But they have always been leaders in their area, first to try something new, shifting from moldboard plowing to chisel plowing to ridge till. You know, they were ridge tilling 30 years ago, and then to strip till. Um, They build a custom freshening system for the spring, and we'll hear about that from another guy that I talked to. So they were not satisfied with what they could buy, and so they built their own freshening system. Um, Sometimes as many as six nitrogen applications. I mean, I look at that, and I think, that is pretty crazy to be going across the field that many times, but John crunches the numbers. They are growing very high yields, and feel that in specific situations, sometimes all of those applications of nitrogen pay. All of those applications of nitrogen, is that a context for cover crops? Are they going to see nitrogen tie-up? You know, are they going to have problems with residue tying up the nitrogen in the row if they're putting so much nitrogen, not a whole lot at one time, but so much nitrogen right where the crop needs it? Probably not. They're creating a context where they're not going to have problems with cereal rye. So they grow cereal rye ahead of corn, commonly. Todd and his daughter, Mackenzie, um, Mooberry, they are um, in uh, central Illinois, about 1,800 acres. They were continuous corn for a number of years, but now pretty much a 50-50 corn soybean rotation. Strip tilling since 2001, um, and they... You know, they were watching what some of the other people in the area were doing, but definitely Todd was a pioneer. Um, And, you know, they started with somebody else running the bar, and then quickly Todd rented the bar, um, started without guidance, but quickly he realized to do it right he needed guidance. One of the things he did in addition to using the eight-row Orthman one-trip stripper, he built a strip freshener system that's now sold by Yetter. And an interesting twist on this, he mentioned to me that there's a scientist at the University of Minnesota who is looking at using some modification of those units for interseeding cover crops, basically to get the seed soil contact improved in between the rows. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to again recognize and thank Novatel for supporting this podcast. 
Novotel's GNSS receivers and antennas are found in the data collection, control, guidance, and steering systems of the world's top precision egg companies and vehicle manufacturers' products. Their TerraStar Correction Services provide sub-meter or decimeter accurate positioning around the world anytime. As the global leader in OEM precision positioning technology, Novotel customers rely on them to provide reliable, quality solutions that optimize growers' productivity and efficiency that save time and lower input costs. Visit www.novotel.com or call them today at 1-800-668-2835. Reflecting on Joel's comment so far, one of the terms that caught my attention was soil evangelist. And this is someone who is an advocate for soil change and one who also practices what they preach. This comes through an understanding that cover crops need to be put into context and farmers should consider numerous factors, including climate variability, crop rotation, and harvest and planting schedules. As Joel says, some variables can be changed while others cannot, forcing farmers to adapt their cover cropping strategy for short and long-term benefits. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Joel Groover on his involvement and experience with other innovative cover crop integrators. Huey Meyer, somebody that I just talked to, Meyer Land and Cattle, they are all corn and cattle. They finish a lot of cattle and all of the corn grain is sold, but all of the corn stalks are taken off the field and fed to the cattle along with byproducts. And so they are concerned that they don't have enough protection of the soil because they're taking off all the stalks. They're putting back lots of manure, but those, you know, that manure doesn't cover the soil the way that the corn stalks would. And so they have started working on how to integrate cover crops into their strip-till system. They just were recognized... 2013 Conservation Farm Family of the Year. I guess 2013 isn't just uh, yesterday. It doesn't seem too long ago. Um, and then Blake Vince, I think, has spoken um, to no-till meetings, and maybe he's been, maybe he was here at the meeting last year. Um, this was somebody who really got into strip-till. I mean, he went hard into strip-till. He was one of the first guys to buy a soil warrior back in 2007, and he's actually stopped strip-tilling. He's now doing continuous no-till. Now, he thinks of what he's doing as accomplishing all the objectives of strip-till, but he's not using steel to make the strips anymore. And it was kind of a conversion experience for him. He went down to a meeting, and he heard Dave Brandt. And Dave Brandt came up to him and said, I think Roots can do everything that your steel is doing. And, you know, he... I think was a little taken back at first. And then after meeting um, Dave Brand and other people on their farms and seeing these 15 species cocktails and some of the crazy things that they were doing, he decided that he wants to sell a soil warrior. He used it for five years and was actually very pleased with it. But if somebody is looking for a soil warrior, I think he has one to sell. So this was a system that he was using. And it wasn't that he was disappointed with this system he just decided that he wanted biology to do what he was doing with this system. Now, I'll just mention real quickly, 
in terms of context. His father was a no-till pioneer. His father liked the soil warrior. His father does not know what's going on now with abandoning steel and implementing biology. And so they are having some conflict. And I heard that in his voice. And he, you know, he talked about that weighing on him, that pessimism from his dad and from other people, but especially his dad. And you know, I hope I'm not going out of place talking about this, but this is context in terms of how we fit strip till and cover crops together. We need to think about the human story, not just the agronomics. The Tom Hay Farm is a close collaboration of three generations, and they really work well together. They don't see exactly eye to eye, but they, they support each other in really good ways. And Austin, my just recently graduated student, he likes to operate equipment. And so he, he has drilled 1,200 acres of cereal rye in just a few weeks. Almost all in September last year, he drilled 1,200 acres of cereal rye, and he was moving right along. 20-foot drill, 20-plus acres per hour. He was describing this to me, and I was saying, your fields must be really smooth. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go quite as fast as he was describing. But they plant really low rates of cereal rye, 20 to 30 pounds per acre. He started out telling me they only plant 20 pounds per acre. I was like, when are you planting? He said, well, you know, mid-September, they're planting 20 pounds per acre. It tillers. They get good soil seed contact, and they end up with good stands with a rate that low. And then by the end of September, they've upped it to a whopping 30 pounds per acre. You know, those are very low rates, but because they're drilling, because their whole farming system is designed to plant as early as possible and to harvest as early as possible, and they're only doing this on about a third of their acres, the acres that they harvest first. The grandfather would like to do this on every acre. They haven't gotten there yet. This is right down the road from the research farm that I manage. This is a, um, a Salford system, 40 feet wide, with uh, air delivery of cereal rye and radish, only 40 pounds of rye per acre. And I think they may even back it down a little bit more. You know, these are very, this, this is a big operation, but it's a family with more than six principal operators all working together and some of them are the evangelists, and some of them are the number crunchers, and they agree, you know, they arrive at a compromise, which is a lower seeding rate of rye today than they used to use. Austin was telling me that they've tried aerial seeding annual ryegrass for five years. They tried over 300 acres in 2014, and they've been getting uneven stands, inconsistent kill in the spring, and higher seed cost, higher than their 20 pounds of cereal rye per acre, and they're probably not going to continue with it in, um, you know, this fall or in the future. Now, I saw that, and I thought, this is quite different than what I just heard from some other people that I had just talked to and some other presentations I just looked at. And I thought about, what is the context? What is different here? The Tom Haves, they have the labor, they have, you know, the excellent equipment operators, and they really don't like to have other people doing things less effectively on their farm. And so having someone else come out and aerial seed rye and have it not look as nice as where Austin drilled the rye, they don't like that. And I'm sure there are other things, you know, part of their context that creates this scenario. Todd Mooberry, maybe he got lucky, but 
This was 2011, fall 2011, and it was a favorable um, fall for aerial seeding because right after the seeding, he got some rain. And so he put on a mix of annual ryegrass and crimson clover, a decent seeding rate, not a real high seeding rate, but a decent seeding rate, and he got a great stand. And part of that was that he did run over with a vertical tillage tool to get the seed in the soil. Um, it grew a few inches, three to four inches, and then he strip-tilled, and he was very pleased with how the strip-till um, bar or the strip-till units worked through the um, cover crops, and he was also pleased with how well the corn did the next season. And so he's expanded his use of cover crops, and he's you know, done, continued to do aerial seeding, continued to use annual ryegrass, but he's also added cereal rye. He's looking at some other options. So here's a picture you can see those strips now are pretty distinct. As I recall, when he was describing this, there was soil that was thrown and that looked like it had buried some of the cover crops initially. And I heard that also from Austin Tomhave, that Austin doesn't want a lot of cover crops showing when they have just stripped, because they know that the cover crop will come back. Austin said, actually, they would like the strips to no longer be visible when winter really sets in that the cereal rye has grown back over the strip. Now, the physical properties of that strip are different, and the biological, or sorry, the uh, chemical properties are different because they have put nitrogen into that strip. So the next spring, they are able to quickly make that strip ready for the next crop, whether it be corn or soybeans, even if it looks like that strip is covered. This was not somebody that I talked to, but I've met Frank before, and he has found annual ryegrass to actually work very well for him. So he's up in northern Iowa, and obviously he's not planting annual ryegrass after harvest. He's flying on annual ryegrass, and he actually doesn't want it to overwinter. He would like to have that annual ryegrass get established earlier, grow, and then winter kill if, you know, if possible, because he's gotten it established early enough that he thinks he has enough roots and enough cover that it will do its job, and then he won't have to kill it. He won't have to struggle to kill it in the spring if it has died. I talked to a couple other farmers who were thinking about that as well. Huey Meyer, for example, he's doing interseeding, so he's planting it even earlier, and he specifically picked out an annual ryegrass variety that is a southern forage variety. He wants it to grow as much as possible in the fall and then to be as reliable a winter kill variety as possible. So how do we get annual ryegrass to work? I mean, the Tom Haves were not satisfied with it. They're dropping that from their portfolio. I think a guy who many of you have heard of who you know, is a great example of someone who's really figured out how to make annual ryegrass work is Jamie Scott. Another um, great presentation to watch online is this one, Innovative Ways to Seed Cover Crops. Jamie Scott, um, there, there was a, a meeting funded by Howard Buffett, I think two years ago, and that's when this presentation was given. And I think you were part, Mike Shooter, I think, was also part of this, uh, this session. So what is Jamie doing differently? Well, a number of different things. They are seeding about 50,000 acres of annual ryegrass, okay? And so they are getting big blocks of land together. They are really thinking about how to optimize the technology. So this was how they were first loading their planes. 
Now they have a different system where they can very accurately weigh exactly what they put in, so they're able to calibrate very effectively um, and regularly. And the combination of the different things they're doing, the large acreages, the large amount of seed that they're buying, they are able to make this very cost-effective, significantly cheaper than running a drill, and certainly much, much faster. In a single day, they may seed 8,000 acres. Okay. One thing that Jamie really likes about aerial seeding is you get an as-applied map. Okay? Now, one thing we have to keep in mind with an as-applied map, of course, is it's telling you where the plane flew. Right? It's not measuring exactly where the seed landed. And so this is not from Jamie's presentation, but um, I went to uh, Joe Curlis's farm. Anybody know Curlis uh, aerial seeding in Illinois? They take calibration very seriously. Any aerial applicator who cannot tell you how they calibrate for the specific seeds that you want them to fly on is not somebody that you want to work with. They, they need to be doing something like that so they know the swath width for the specific seeds. This is probably the most interesting thing in Jamie's presentation. He had some ryegrass that was drilled and some that was flown. And he said that from the road, the drilled actually looked better, looked like a more uniform stand. But then they had a very heavy rain, and I don't know that you could see it in this picture here, but there were actually some rills, there was some cutting, there was some erosion where they had that drilled stand. Where they had the annual ryegrass that was flown on, there was no erosion. And he was really perplexed. What, what's going on here? Because they don't look that different. Why would one have more, you know, resistance to erosion, more infiltration, less runoff. And so he dug, and he found that the roots were very different for the aerial-seeded ryegrass. The plants were not as uniformly distributed. They may have been farther apart, but they were established when there was one and a half more hours of daylight, and it was 12 degrees warmer, about a month earlier. And, of course, they didn't grow that much when they were under the canopy, but when that canopy came off, they took off, and the top growth really was not much bigger than where the drilling took place, but the root systems were much bigger. And Jamie interpreted that as being a key benefit that he wants to achieve through aerial seeding and as an explanation of why there was less erosion. Just a few quick things, and this is part of the context of what you should think about in terms of selecting seeds. If you are not somebody who takes the herbicide chemistry really seriously, or the, you know, if the uh, applicator, you know, the custom uh, applicator in your area doesn't take water quality really seriously, then you should not probably do annual ryegrass. But if your context is that you take annual ryegrass termination really seriously, then I think there are plenty of examples of people having success. So he's conditioning the water with AMS. He's lowering the pH with citric acid. He's not using a lot of Roundup. His point in this presentation was, if you're using a lot more than one quart of Roundup, then probably there are other things wrong with your termination program. And then he also adds 2,4-D or Sharpen. His number one message was, while the water quality is really important, you have to make sure that the plant is actively growing. It's not a particular height of the plant, it is new growth. 
Three to four inches of new growth, he said, will allow good termination. Less than that, if the plants are green, but they haven't put on the new growth yet, they're not ready to kill. Um, Middle of the day, don't do anything that's going to shut down the vascular system, such as putting in other things in your tank mix that might harm the plant so that it doesn't translocate as well. And um, you can see his perspective on the uh, volume of water and high pressure so that you have small droplets. This is context, as I said, for what you should select. You shouldn't just select annual ryegrass because you think it has a good root system. You shouldn't select annual ryegrass just because it is tolerant of flooding. Your context needs to include that you are likely to be successful in killing it. Otherwise, you should not select it. This was something that was emphasized in Cameron's presentation. I've been hearing this now from several other people, and I actually don't have enough personal experience to weigh in, but it made total sense when Cameron was explaining this, when Blake Vince was explaining this. Don't worry about the color of your corn. I think Jamie Scott was also saying this in his presentation. There is enough light coming through the corn canopy that their experience is if you wait until the corn has brown leaves up to the ear, some years that's going to be really too late. There's enough light coming through that planting or aerial seeding or with a ground-based system, you know, dropping the seed earlier is normally better than later. Speaking of early, of course, we're hearing a lot of buzz these days about interseeding, early interseeding, before the canopy has even closed. And so this is on Cameron Mills' farm. He's seeding at V5. How how many of you have done this? Okay. How many of you would never do this? Okay, I I thought I might see some more hands. I mean, the concept of putting out something growing during your growing season, I think that's just an example of how... I guess, innovative you guys are. I mean, imagine going to a meeting of the farmers in your community, just a cross-section of the farmers in your community. I think you'd see a lot of hands say, I would never put something out there intentionally living during the growing season. But, um, you know, we, we have to figure this out. This isn't something we've totally figured out, but I think the biology um, seems to be working. The chemistry, we have to figure out how to do this with the herbicides we want to use, and of course we have to figure out how to do this with crop insurance so that we don't comp- compromise our crop insurance. Huey Meyer is the cattleman up in, he's in Stevenson County, Illinois. Anybody know where that is? That's the northwest corner of Illinois, so it's, it's way up there. And he wanted to, you know, he's taking off all the corn stalks to feed. He was finding that far north that he was not getting good establishment if you planted after harvest. So he wants to intercede. And so he just built this interceder this year. And so basically it's a uh, cultivator that he's put an airbox on. And that picture was taken two days ago. He's pleased with that. Some farmers would be horrified to see that much green, you know, green up top and green down low at the same time. But Huey is, is really pleased with that. And I, I hope this really works out well for him. Well, thank you, Joel, for sharing your interactions with farmers and their experiences putting the pieces together for a successful cover cropping system. Again, we'd like to thank and recognize Novatel for supporting this Strip-Till Farmer podcast. 
And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program. So feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store and get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. And I'd also encourage you to keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on September 7th for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series. And be sure to look for continuing coverage of our just completed fourth annual National Strip Tillage Conference at striptillfarmer.com. For Joel Gruber, Novatel, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. <music>